Gil Eyal is an author and professor of sociology affiliated with Columbia University. His broad research interests encompass sociological work around science, medicine, professions, knowledge and intellectuals, which he broadly calls the sociology of expertise. In this episode, we discuss his book, The Crisis of Expertise. So hi, Gil, and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here today, and I'm very excited to know more about yourself and the work you've been doing. Uh, so to get us started, I'd just like to know a little bit about yourself, about your academic background, and uh, more specifically about your interest in science, knowledge, and technology you know, as, as areas of research. Okay, uh, so I'm a professor of sociology in Colombia. Um, I'm originally from, from Israel. I got my uh, BA and MA in sociology at Tel Aviv University. And then I went and did my PhD at UCLA in sociology. Career ultimately took me to New York. I'm interested in expertise, uh, which is kind of like a meeting point or a interface between science, politics, the professions like medicine, law, and also what, you know, the kind of knowledge that ordinary people develop, because there is a within the field, this idea of lay expertise. It's kind of like a contradiction in terms, but it's not really. It's the idea that lay people often, because of their life experiences, let's say um, an illness that they may have, develop expertise that often um, is you know, superior to the recognized official experts in, in that particular field. So that, that's kind of like my general interest. I didn't start with this interest. From the very beginning in, in my work in sociology or when I was a student, I was interested in the relationships between knowledge and the people who claim to have that knowledge and the sort of distribution of power in society. That led me to different kinds of work. So I, I, I worked on the role that dissident intellectuals and economists played in the transition from communism to capitalism in Eastern Europe. I was I, I wrote about the role that Middle East scholars, Orientalists, and intelligence officers play in Israeli society, its relationship with uh, the countries around it and the Palestinian minority. Um, I wrote about autism uh, because I was really really fascinated by the role that parents of autistic children played um, in this field. These are lay experts who really changed the way we understand autism, so I, I wanted to understand that. And so you, you could say there's many, many different things, but they're all kind of connected with a certain thread of the interest in the relationships between knowledge, intellectuals, experts, distribution of power in society. And then just before the pandemic, I wrote a book called The Crisis of Expertise, uh, which was an attempt to kind of summarize the sense that I had at that time, and I think was vindicated, um, that um, the relationships between experts and the public, between experts and the state, between the public and the institutions of expertise, the state institutions of expertise, all of them are in a crisis, the crisis of trust and mistrust. Um, so kind of this is what the book was about. And, and um, obviously the pandemic kind of vindicated this point. So I continue to work on this um, currently as well. 
definitely right you know i think um, you know i think like something i'd like to sort of start off with is just looking at this word expert and really unpacking what it means you know because you know on one hand you have i don't know like a sociologist or a professor who maybe might have 15 20 30 years in the field you know and i think if you look at it from an intellectual experience standpoint you know i think they are like definitely you know like qualified to be an expert right especially looking at the awards publications a lot of other you know like things like that right and you know i think on the other hand if you take a plumber you, you know uh, or like a carpenter right who's been doing a hard skill for really long you know i think he also he or she also has you know their own you know like set like area of expertise right so i think in that sense like for a long time i think the word expert has really been associated with elitism and i'm thinking that you know that is perhaps one part of the problem in that sense so i just like to know your thoughts on this correlation between expertise and elitism and where you know the problem really is in that Yeah so I, I do deal with that in the book um and I follow the Wittgenstein who said don't ask what it means ask what does it do which uh and then you apply cuz you try to do this right now and I, you know lots of people do that I did it too you know ask okay what is an expert can I define it who who has expertise etc cetera, etc cetera. so we're trying to figure out what does it mean when you do that you know you 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 can you can do a little bit of so the genealogy of this world the etymology then you realize that the word comes from the word for experience in latin the the word uh, for being um tried for somebody who has you know has enough experience that they are they 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 you know that they they uh, they're, they're going to rise up to the task um actually it comes out that the word that the hebrew language uses for expert is also very ancient appears in the talmud and means credible um so again you, you can see that there's a lot of meanings but then you can also ask okay what does it do and that my question was like why did we start to talk in this terms of expertise because if you like do something like a google engram and look to see like uh, where's this word coming from you realize that it was actually not part of public discussion didn't appear in books and texts almost at all mm-hmm. um up till the 1960s right. um in fact in the english language the word expertise does not exist until the late 19th century which is it is adopted from the french Now in French and German the word does exist but in French for example it didn't mean something that expert has mm-hmm. it meant something that expert does yeah. so it's the meaning still exists in the French language today you can say that you know um an assessor will do an expertise of a painting in order to figure out how much it's worth or something like that so that's that's how the word was used it wasn't used in the meaning that we give it today like the thing that the expert has um and so I, i began to ask like why is it that this word suddenly becomes useful and the moment you ask this question you the the, the answers like kind of hits you in the face you need this word when you don't know who the experts are like as long as it's clear you don't need a word like that like, this is the expert this is the expert but the moment you start asking how do i know if this one or that one is the person that i should um listen to then you start to ask who has expertise and then you need that word and in the 60s you know it completely explodes into public discourse why 
because it's not clear who the experts are. Now, why is that? There's, there's a variety of reasons. There is, um, you know, sort of a decline in the system of professions. Um, there is uh, also jurisdictional struggles between professions and newcomers. Um, you know, for example, in my work on autism, I already was familiar with this, that um, throughout the 1950s and 60s, you know, um, autism is the province of psychiatry. But there's a lot of complaints that, first of all, psychiatry doesn't know what to do with it, that they uh, constantly misdiagnose it. And there's some research that shows, you know, that if you've got one, one psychiatrist, you get one diagnosis, you go to another, you get a completely different one. And one child had 11 different diagnoses, you know, from going to different doctors. And that they, um, Psychiatry was organized, you know, as a relatively small profession because, you know, professions want to control how many people can practice because then you can, you know, increase how much you're getting paid and all of that. So it's a relatively small profession, not equal to the task of dealing with a large amounts, potentially large amounts of children. And so in comes psychology, sort of an upstart discipline and says, well, we, we could do it. Um, and, and they develop their own theories and their own approaches. And today, for example, you know, the most common therapy for autism is applied behavioral analysis, which is which was developed in the 1960s by a behavioral psychologist. And when he developed it, the psychiatrist was like, oh, this is so superficial. This doesn't touch, you know, all the deep issues. But parents said, oh, this is useful because yeah, I'm not going to cure my child, but my child will now sit straight, eat their food, will go to the toilet when they need to. These are things we need. And so a coalition was formed between um, psychologists and, and parents and kind of sidelined the psychiatrist. So that's another form of jurisdictional struggle. Then you get a lot of jurisdictional struggles happening at courts too. When, when you have a, a court case, and you bring an expert witness, and then the defense brings an expert witness, and they disagree. Um, and that happens a lot in cases of environmental pollution and, and stuff like that. Uh, and here you start to get a, another sense of why we need that word. It's because the rapid progress of economic and technological development keeps creating problems like pollution, like climate change, like the pandemic, um, like nuclear reactor accidents, for which there isn't really one expert. They're very new, they're very complex, they have multi, many different sides to them. And so you actually really need many, many different kinds of forms of expertise to deal with them. But what you get is this clash and struggle over who has expertise. So right now in, in the pandemic, it's, you know, epidemiologists or virologists or you know, public health experts or who, you name it, they all struggle over this again. So these are all processes that um, lead to kind of the, 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 the not knowing who the experts are, needing that word. And maybe the major process is the fact that we have become so dependent on experts. Um, today, uh, many, many, many state decisions about, uh, you know, where do you put a nuclear reactor? Uh, do you allow a highway through this village? You know, whatever. Cannot be taken rationally 
and often cannot be taken legally without input from experts. So I, I'm sure the situation in India is different. But in the United States, if a state agency takes a decision like that and somebody challenges it, they have to defend it in court. And the court was asked, show me that this was a rational decision. And the way to show it is to say, I asked the experts and I looked at the empirical evidence. So we've become very dependent on experts. And I think it's very obvious now during the pandemic that we're all waiting to hear from the experts of the FDA, the experts of the CDC, you know, the experts of the Ministry of Health or, or whatever. Um, and that means, however, that we are very sensitive also to their mistakes, their errors, and also not just mistakes, no, just when they change their mind. Um, because the research has changed. We know this about science, that um, you know, science constantly changes and progresses, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's fine. But it's not fine when decisions that impact people's lives and have redistributive consequences, they make some people rich, they make some people poor, they make some people die, they make some people live, those decisions suddenly change, right? Um, the cutoff for what is a toxic, you know, what what is the level of, you know, a, to a toxin in the water? You know, they say, oh, it's 0. 0.0002. And you say, okay, I can drink the water. And then two years later, they say, oops, that was a mistake. It, it's actually 0. 0.003 and you shouldn't drink the water, you know. <laughs> and you say, give me back those two years, right? <laughs> so, so, I mean, all of those reasons are why we are in such a tangle um, and also why we need that word, expertise. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I think uh, something that sort of struck out to me about, you know, the answer, right, was that we never actually really needed the word expertise, you know. So when does this word actually become important, right? Like, why do we need it? And, you know, I think in that sense, right, like when we begin to identify, you know, who the experts are and give them so much importance, I think there is a subtle or a not so subtle power, you know, that that they do have, right? It's not as as overt or as explicit as the power that, you know, say, like the government has or the king has. But, you know, I think in mm -hmm. that sense, the very fact that we depend on them for a lot of like our daily lives, especially, right? I think, especially not like during the COVID-19 pandemic, I think that's an example. So, yeah, I think, you know, I'd just like to know um, a little bit about the kind of power that they have, how this is exercised and controlled in that sense. So it's a weird kind of power. As you said, it's not, it's not the power of a king or a president or a policeman. The expert doesn't have typically, not always, but typically doesn't have the authority to tell you what to do. Now, sometimes they do. So sometimes psychiatrists have the power to put people in a mental institution, right? Um, sometimes a public health official have the power to say this business must be closed. It, you know, it's too dirty or or the pandemic makes it too dangerous. Um, but this is, this is a lot of power. And I would say, as a rule, experts are not that powerful. If they have too much power, politicians will take it away from them. Um, and you can see it all over the world. Uh, and so, and also, but they have a, a different kind of power. They have what you might call cultural authority the ability to give you an advice that um, you really shouldn't ignore <laughs> for your own good. Um, so 
you know, they can tell you things like, well, you know, if, if you don't want um, Bombay to become the new Atlantis, then don't do anything about climate change, right? You don't have to do anything. Um, but in, in reality, you know, the advice does carry culture, cultural authority. But it's a funny kind of cultural authority as well. It's not the same. It's not completely the same as the cultural authority of the priest or the, the religious leader. So there are similarities. Um, but I would say that in order to, to, for the cultural, the cultural authority of the experts to be recognized, people have to, you know, be educated. They have to, rec you know, they have to recognize this, oh, this person really does know a lot more and it's the rational thing to do to follow their advice. This is why we go to the doctor, right? I don't feel well. I go to the doctor to consult them. And when I do that, I implicitly say, you know more about this. It will be uh, in my interest to listen to you. Now, maybe after many times of going to the doctor, I realize they don't really know all that much or it's not in my interest to listen to them. But at least initially, that's, that's the, the gambit. Um, but what's funny about it is that the very reason why I follow their advice is also why the is also the reason why I may start to mistrust and decide that I can follow my own because after all I needed to be rational to recognize that their advice is the right thing and I needed to be knowledgeable at least to a minimum level to recognize that I should follow the expert and at a certain point you can say well I can do it myself and we all do it with doctors right now so Often you go to the doctor today and you say, um, I need you to prescribe me this medicine. And they go, why? I need to check you. I know what I have. I've read everything on the internet. Uh, just can you write it, please? And if you don't, I'm going to go to another doctor. <laughs> yeah, obviously doctors don't like that. Um, but the, you can see that the... the the authority of experts is a paradoxical kind of authority. There's a built-in tension in it that can always lead to what we see today, which is a lot of mistrust of experts and a lot of people who say, yeah, you, you can do your own research. Actually, so this, this connects to some research I'm doing now. So I, I, I'm, I'm doing research now on um, long COVID patients. Um, people who, you know, contracted COVID, seem to have recovered, but then have a lot of continuing symptoms, uh, you know, brain fog, uh, muscle pain, you know, a lot of, a lot of problems. Um, and we interviewed them and we asked them a lot of questions, but some of the questions we asked are about trust. Like, what sources of information do you trust? So, as is true, for when you ask questions like that from ordinary people, one of the top ones is my doctor. But it's not very high. <laughs> it's, it's actually, you know, we, we run, uh, the, the, the questions runs from one, I don't trust them at all, to five, I trust a lot. And in doctors, it's like 3.3. You know, it's like, eh, even more so. so. So we have, you know, a sample of people who, who filled the survey. Now, 
we advertise this in, in Facebook groups and, and um, support groups for people with long COVID. But we also have a screener question that says, do you suffer from long COVID or do you think that you have it? And some people have some people say they don't. So I, I mean, I'm not completely sure why they answered the survey, but they did. So there's like a group of about 15% of the sample. They trusted doctors a lot more than the long COVID patients too. Their numbers is like four or something like that, their average. And that shows you the process through which long, and, and what do, what do um, actually the, the other thing that everybody trusts, my research. They say, my research. And long COVID patients trust my research, right? Um, and so you can see here that when somebody has something like long COVID, which is, um, uh, we, we, the term is no longer uh, true for it, I would say, but used to be called something like an orphan disease. Orphan disease because the medical establishment does not know what to do with it, so they ignore it. It's not true anymore. By now, there's a lot of research and a lot of attempts to deal with it, but it still does enormous amount of uncertainty. And in that process of uncertainty, um, the patients discover that they and other patients are far more knowledgeable about the condition than your ordinary doctor. Now, there might be some experts who you know, made this their research and they know even more, but going to your doctor, it's not gonna help you. Um, and, and so you can see that, that um, they have already, uh, uh, you know, I mean, yes, my doctor, I trust my doctor, but not for long COVID, right? No, not for this. And, and, uh, and, and so you can see here the, the trickiness of the authority of experts. And I think we see it during the pandemic now. Um, we all wanted to believe the experts, to trust them. But then, um, first of all, sometimes they advise things we didn't like. Sometimes they were proven wrong. And sometimes there were people who were saying, no, don't listen to them, listen to me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm more of an expert on this. And then you're kind of asking yourself, uh, who should I listen to? Yeah. So, but I, I will come back to your question because your question kind of reflected the sense that there is, you know, that, that knowledge is a form of power in society. And I totally agree with that. And indeed, the same period that in the 60s and early 70s, well, when people start to talk about expertise, also people, the, the period where they talk about technocracy, this idea that the knowledgeable are ruling the rest of society. But I think the reality of it is, is kind of like that you have to think about it as, as two different things. And this is why I say I'm interested in expertise and experts, but they are two different things. So, Yes, knowledge is a form of power of society, formidable power. Everybody struggle over it. That doesn't mean that the experts, the people with knowledge are necessarily powerful. They are just one actor among many who are struggling to occupy this position of the person who's able to tell you, this is what you need to do. And in fact, they're not that powerful anyway. <laughs> Yeah, right. You know, I think, um, in fact, I think, you know, to that very point on knowledge and power, right, I think, 
you know, at the heart of, you know, the expert being someone who is powerful is the question of knowledge, you know. And then I think in that sense, right, like, you know, much more recently, we've been seeing, you know, this backlash towards, you know, experts, especially in the sciences and all of that. And then, you know, it, um, it makes me wonder, right, you know, like, what does it really take to dispute an expert, you know, because, you know, like, um, yes, you know, like, I'm just like, you know, like wondering that is it that the people who dispute the expert regard themselves as experts themselves, or is it that, you know, they think that this entire framework in which knowledge is produced and constructed is just, you know, really messed up and, you know, we need to like do something about it. That's why I don't trust the person as an expert, because I think, you know, if you're having two experts arguing, that's one thing, but if you're having, you know, like the common public, you know, like sort of, you know, like going against knowledge, I think that is a much larger, you know, like question to society. Yeah, but I don't think it's as simple as that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's the common public. But there's a lot of people like you and me who are educated and knowledgeable. I mean, I'm an expert. I'm an expert on what? On experts, I guess. All right. Uh, but I'm not an expert on medicine or, or uh, you know. And yet, you know, here I am talking about it. Um, and, and we all do. Um, and I think um, it is not the case that, that it is just a question of whether you trust, whether the public trusts science or trusts the experts. It, it's, that's not the situation. And because those, if I come back to something I said before, because those problems are so complex, are so devilish, they have so many different sides, Many, many different people have little pieces of the puzzle and can claim forms of expertise. I'll give you some examples. So um, when I was working on autism, you know, one of the issues is the whole argument about whether vaccine causes autism. And you know the role that this theory plays now. Um, now, there was a group of parents who wrote an article that said, you know, we found that indeed the, the mercury preservatives in the vaccine is causing autism. And then there was also this British doctor who wrote this article, Andrew Wakefield, and, you know, other parents flocked around him as well. And then the medical establishment says, you know, we run tests, we run studies, we run experiments, we show you that's not true. And they, they do clinical trials, etc. But among the parents who wrote the original article, there's one nurse, there's um, one guy who is an insurance expert, uh, and you know, there's other, they have different kinds of forms of expertise. An insurance expert is really good in statistics. So every time the medical establishment comes out with a clinical trial, he finds problems with it. He pokes holes, he says, ah, but if you, you know, if you measure this like this, or if you change the significance level, or if you did that, you'll see different results. Um, and lots of people have this. Um, uh, I'll give another example. La lab leak, the, whether the virus leaked from the lab in Wuhan. The guy from India the, who has, who uh, you know, played a major role, you know, young Young man, young kid, he has expertise in what? In sleuthing on the internet, some computer science, some, some software, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's also a form of expertise that can be, 
clearly can be leveraged to sometimes show, I know about this a little more than the experts, right? Um, and so I think we, we, we do live in a, in a society where there are many, many different people have all kinds of different kinds of expertise. And, and the question is, which one's relevant? Now, I always say you need actually to combine a lot of different types of expertise in order to deal with those problems. But often there's those kind of struggles. The, the sociologist Michel Calon um, wrote about 10 years ago, he wrote a little pamphlet. He called it Disabled of the World Unite. Why disabled? I mean, you know, it's like workers of the world unite. But why disabled? Um, his point was that ordinary people and experts are both disabled in the sense that they only know something and they don't know a lot of what we don't know. And if you want to deal with problems like nuclear reactors, like climate change or all those things, everybody has to say, I'm not an expert, I'm disabled. I only know, I only know how to do something very little. And then they have to try to combine it together. That was kind of like his insight. Mm, right. Yeah, I think, you know, like back to the question on mistrust, right? I think, I don't know, like I still like, um, I'm not entirely sure as to, you know, where it comes from, right? Because, you know, earlier it was just a question of this is the expert, right? Like this is the knowledge that they have. And then I think, you know, to say that, hey, like I don't trust this, you know, like something is wrong. Like I think, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to, you know, like understand, right? Like, like where does that come from exactly? So I don't think anybody has a complete answer to that. This is the million, six million dollar question that everybody is trying to deal with right now. And there's a lot of work and research about this. I, I, I go about it a little differently. I say that one cannot start from the question of mistrust. Because when you start asking, oh, why these people are mistrusting, you're kind of implying that they're irrational, they're duped, you know, somebody tricked them, you know, etc. And I also say that, you know, the opposition is really not between trust and mistrust. Mm-hmm. Because whenever we trust, we also a little bit mistrust as well. Um, if you knew everything there was to know, let's say, about the other person or, or the thing, you, do, you wouldn't need to trust them, mm-hmm. right? You trust because you don't know because there's a little bit of element of ignorance. And that means also that there's also a little bit of mistrust lingering there, which can explain why sometimes on a a dime, a lot of trust can turn into mistrust when you feel betrayed, right? Mm -hmm. But I trusted, I trusted so much. So now I mistrust so much. I I don't believe anything you say right now because you feel betrayed. So the relationship between trust and mistrust is not linear. Yeah, it's not monotonous. And then I then I, I, I thought about it more and then and I kind of think that the 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 relevant opposition is not between trust and mistrust, but between blind faith and responsible trust. What do I mean by this? I mean that when we go about our everyday life, we constantly trust. Like you walk in the street, you trust that the other person is not going to be a thief and try to steal something from you. You get into your car, you trust that it's built correctly and it's not going to blow up, you know, etc. Et Most of the time, 
We do this without much thinking. But we have ways of kind of demonstrating that what we're doing is responsible. And sometimes, you know, when something happens, people have this argument where they say, oh, they deserved it because that was blind faith. You know, that they, they you know, they really didn't check anything. There, there was no, I mean, if you looked at the sign, there was no reason to trust, you know, etc. So we have, we employ Sometimes tacitly, but but sometimes you know also talking to other people, we employ this distinction between when is it responsible, legitimate to trust, and when we would say, oh, that's blind faith, that's irrational, you're irresponsible, um, then it was your fault. Now most of the time, that distinction is fairly solid, but the pandemic really scrambled. Right, it really scrambled it. Um, so you know, should you wear masks now when you're in the presence of other people in a room? Should you wear a mask? Yes, when you're outside, should you? No, but if we are very close to one another, should I? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, or well, I'm vaccinated, but my kid is not vaccinated, so should I wear a mask? You know, I mean. It, I mean, all of this has been scrambled. That's why there's a lot of you know, friction because the line between what is, and you hear this also from the people who mistrust, they say, you guys, you're blindly following the experts, even though the experts were wrong. I mean, if you brought a plumber to your house and they told you, okay, I fixed it, and then you still have a leak, you're not going to get this plumber again, right? But with <laughs> with COVID, we, we have less of a... You know, I mean, you, you brought the experts, they made mistakes, but you still rely on them. So those people mistrust say, you're blindly following, this is irresponsible. Do your own research, you know, etc. Only trust yourself, etc. Et et yeah. That's where the struggle is. Yeah, so, so I mean, I gave a lot of examples from the pandemic, but I, what I would say is that um, our life is by now, because of our dependency on experts, is governed by a lot of um, what I would call regulatory science uh, guidelines. So uh, things like, um, uh, I guess, uh, uh, like, you know, what level of, of uh, pollution, is it advisable to go outside or not? Um, you know, uh, how many times should you take your medication? Uh, how many, how often should you get a mammogram uh, or prostate check? Uh, you know, all those things. Now, these things have become embedded into what I would call our everyday cosmologies. The way in which we understand the world around us, the way in which we divide the world around us into benevolent, good entities and dangerous, risky entities, right? Uh, for example, chemicals and natural stuff, right? Natural stuff, good, chemicals, etc. Um, and they become embedded into how we convince ourselves and display to others that we engage in responsible behavior, 
we are accountable to them, we trust responsibly, etc. etc. When those things change and change quickly, and this was happening not just in the pandemic, but earlier as well, um, then then you start to get mistrust because you start to say, well, then up till now I was like just blindly following something wrong. For example, mammograms. Um, there was a big, huge debate in the United States a few years ago because you have different organizations each giving somewhat different guidelines. Uh, some organizations say you should only get it after age 50 once a year. Others say, oh no, but only once every two years. Others say, no, no, at age 45 you should. And if you have certain risk factors, you should start at 40. Um, and others say, no, 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 that, 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 that's not gonna help, you know. Uh, and prostate checks, even, you know, there was even more uh, debate. So with that, I mean, going to get your mammogram or your prostate check once a year was a way in which you displayed to your loved ones, to your family, to your friends, and to yourself that you are a responsible person. You're taking care of yourself. Um, you recognize the forces in the world that can be dangerous and you're doing what needs to be done in order to take care of yourself. Suddenly it turns out, not. <laughs> so those changes in regulatory science, which are really accelerated during the pandemic, but were happening before, are kind of impacting people, not just at the utilitarian level, they impact them at the level, at the symbolic level in which the world is organized. And that can contribute to mistrust. That's, that's why our dependency on experts also, also translates into mistrust. And this is a kind of a, a circle because the more that you are dependent, the more occasions you have for mistrust. The more you mistrust, the more you look for some kind of expert, some kind of source on which you can rely and, and the thing constantly. And that, that's where we are. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, um, you know, I think like if you look at, you know, vaccines and the whole COVID-19 banding, just one example, right, of how, you know, I think like in the natural sciences, right, it's, it's a field which I think, you know, by itself is a little disconnected from human beings, you know, if I may say so, because we rely so much on, you know, numbers and, you know, like quantitative measures in that sense, you know, so I think in that sense, it's yeah. much more of, you know, like a work in progress, right? And of course, you know, as we have new technology, new discoveries coming up, I think you can't really blame the expert, right? Because, you know, they themselves, you know, like want yeah. the best. It's not so much about yeah. their intentions, yeah. right? It's just about, you yeah. know, like the resources available to them at that moment. Uh, but yeah, you know, I think I'd like to sort of like shift like the questions a little bit from the natural sciences to looking at the human sciences. And I think this is, you know, a dilemma I myself had, you know, um, like taking sociology, right? So the thing is, you know, the college that I went to, I studied in Flame University, which is a pretty, you know, liberal um, elite sort of college, you know, if I may say so. And uh, uh, I may get into trouble for saying this, but, you know, I think a lot of students and faculty as well have pointed out that, you know, if you look at representation, like our college is doing terrible. Like we have, you know, all of the upper class, upper caste kids who, you know, go there, right? We don't have reservations, you know, the fees is very expensive, all of that, right? And in, you know, all of like our sociology um, courses, you know, we are studying um, about, you know, like minorities and, you know, lower caste and lower class people, right? 
But the thing is, if you don't have these people in the classroom, if you don't have, you know, professors from these backgrounds, right, then, you know, I think like I, you know, like thought about this a lot, you know, which is that, you know, to what extent can I trust, you know, an upper caste, upper class person who has only studied about these concepts in theory. And I feel like no matter how fancy the language may be, no matter how heavy the jargons are, you know, if you haven't lived that life, and even if like do a lot of, you know, like the field work and all that, right, like, who can tell us best than the people who've experienced it themselves, right? And I feel like in that sense, I've graduated with a lot of theories. So even though I myself like take up a master's degree or a PhD later, like I will still remain like disconnected from the realities of their lives. So I think um, in that sense, yeah, so this is, you know, just like a question and a comment. If you look at the human sciences, especially, I feel like it's much more complicated because, you know, there is the lived experience angle, right? And like nobody, you know, I mean, you know, who is the best expert to tell, you about your life right you know I mean if it's your life if it's you know like your reality as a Muslim or a black person right like Mm -hmm. who is Mm -hmm. you know a white scholar who has studied 15-20 years about it they haven't lived your life you are the expert right so yes I think that just um, makes things a little bit yeah yeah I I, I totally agree with this as long as as when we say you are the expert we don't mean you're the only expert but that you know that ultimately it's useful to have the view from above, the view from below, the view from the side, you know. Um, but you can, again, uh, uh, take a look at medicine. Medicine is a human science, right? It deals with humans. It deals with the biology of humans, but not only the biology, because your social behavior, your psychological makeup, all of this in- influences. Um, and then the question is, um, who's the expert, right? Who's the expert on your condition? And the, indeed, the, the, there's been a trend in medicine to include patients as experts. It, it has been, you know, it, there's also been a lot of struggles about this. So um, my, my uh, colleague and friend, Steve Epstein wrote his article about um, the AIDS epidemic and the role of ACT UP, the organization, um, so ACTAP engaged in a lot of resistance, but it also did something else, which was um, demand a, a seat at the table with the experts. And when people from ACTAP sat there, they actually brought in not just their interest as patients, they brought in some forms of knowledge and expertise that were lacking around the table. So for example, in order to decide you know, what works for AIDS, you had to run clinical trials. Clinical trials divided into experimental and control groups. You give uh, the medicine to the experimental group, you give a placebo to the control group. You give a placebo to people who are about to die? Can you really do that? And do you think that if you give placebo to people who are about to die, they're not gonna try to get something, your medicine or something else? And if they do, what kind of a comparison are you having? So in this, all of this, the activists knew. They knew because they were these people. And so they came in and said, look, we can help you organize clinical trials in a better way if you just listen to us. And actually clinical trials have changed to that, you know, there's ways in which you run clinical trials without you know, without doing the, the full placebo thing, if it is involved, um, if it involves issues of, you know, of, of something that is 
life-threatening and, and stuff like that. So that was a, a, something that the ordinary people, quote unquote, turn themselves, turning themselves into lay experts, brought in something that the experts didn't have. Um, and it's kind of equivalent to what you were talking about. So if you want to understand, you know, the condition of, um, you know, untouchable workers in the slums, it's, it's good if you have in your research team some people that this is their life experience. So I'm, I'm working now on this question also of mistrust of medicine um, uh, among minority groups, especially here in the Bronx in New York City. But in order to do that, I, I, I mean, I, I did not feel that me with my experiences growing up in Israel, I mean, what do I know about this? So um, I'm teaming up with an organization. Uh, it's called the Bronx Community Health Network, uh, an organization that has, you know, of, of people who are activists in the Bronx. Um, you could say that in the African-Americans, I mean, you could say that by now that most of them are middle class, but they grew up in the Bronx. They know the Bronx still um, from those communities. And I don't think you can do, you know, legitimate, meaningful research without, you know, having that point of view as well. For sure, yeah, definitely. I think in that sense, even knowledge as a concept is so multifaceted, right? Like different people have different, you know, parts of knowledge. And uh, yeah, you know, I think um, like something I'd like to sort of, you know, go back to on, you know, on like the science bit, right? Is that, you know, I think, um, a lot of people say that, you know, if you look at like the vaccine debate, the mask debate, the climate change debate, it's not so much a question of the facts and figures in science, but it's also much more of the politics and the policy implications that people look at. And I think that makes me think about, you know, uh, say if you are an expert, right, I feel like, you know, if you are still right aligned or left aligned, I think that um, maybe, you know, perhaps implicitly it forms a bias to the way that you perceive the numbers and, you know, um, you know, and the way that you go about things. So in that yeah. sense, I just like to know the correlation between like politics and science. Yeah. Yeah. People are worried about the biases, but often it leads them to say, okay, so let's get, uh, you know, artificial intelligence. It doesn't have any biases, but that's not quite true either. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But that, yeah, I, I think you're right about that. Um, and I think also, maybe to relate to what you were saying, it is not the case that um, being an expert and being unbiased goes together. It's actually not the case. So there's a, a philosopher who passed away a couple of years ago, uh, Hubert Dreyfus, who, who was very interested in expertise and studied it for many years. And one of the points he made, he, he made, he has this little article about, you know, the stages by which people become experts. And he says, emotional involvement is absolutely necessary in order to become an expert. And he based this on a study of nurses or people who are learning to be nurses. And he's, you know, when you're a nurse, you're dealing with a lot of things that are emotional. Um, and some people's strategy to deal with that is to distance themselves. It doesn't touch me. Um, and I just do my work. They don't become experts. 
<laughs> according to Dreyfus, you know. When you're an expert, you really have to be emotionally involved in what you're doing. You have to feel the mistake, for example. You have to really feel the mistake. I mean, don't segregate it and say, yeah, I could have done it. I, I could have done it. You know, it was just a, you know, a small mistake. No, you, you really feel it. You really take it in. You become a better expert. Um, and I think that's true across the board. It's also true in the sense that in a lot of the questions that we're dealing with, to be an expert also means that you already have a perspective that is informed by values. For example, um, an expert speech therapist dealing with, you know, learning disability. You know, there's a debate about learning disabilities, you know, uh, how much, you know, how much we should pay attention to them. Uh, they're just a way for, you know, for uh, some some people to, to get advantage for their children. How real are they? You know, whatever. There's lots of things. If you're a speech therapist specializing in this, you already have a position in that debate. You believe it's really real. You believe that, you know, those children need help. You believe that, you know, you're providing them with this help, etc. Et um, you're not neutral. And maybe you don't need to be neutral. Yeah, you know, I'm actually really glad that you brought up the question of, you know, uh, like bias and how that might, you know, influence research, because I think that leads us very well to my final question, which is that the human sciences is just so different from the natural sciences, right? Because we are studying human beings, we are studying, you know, experts and expertise, right? And I think we oftentimes have to acknowledge that we ourselves are human beings. So during the course of our own research, we may have our own, you know, biases and perceptions. So I'd just like to know, you know, if you have ever felt that your background or identity or experiences has influenced oh. the course of your research and how that might be so. The answer is yes, but, but uh, beyond that, I would really, really recommend that you talk to my colleague, Tay Meadow. She's a sociologist in Colombia. She wrote some really interesting things about this. She studies transgender and sexuality. And her point was, is that in those fields, and it's probably true in other fields as well, um, the whole idea that, that um, you should avoid you know, being involved, it's, it's not only like impossible, it's so wrong. It's because this is how you learn stuff. Um, she, she demonstrates the way in which people react to her in the field. She, she, in ways that make her very uncomfortable. She kind of feels, oh, am I really breaching you know, the, the responsibility of a researcher? But then she realized, no, I'm actually learning an enormous amount from the fact that people are reacting to me in particular ways. Anyway, for, for my own part, um, yeah, so um, in the research on autism, for example, I felt I was a, a new parent. I had young children and I felt that um, the reason why I became interested in this topic was probably because of that. It was because I had young children and talked to a lot of other parents that I suddenly became aware of the issue. And I think that also because of that, I had some sensitivity to the position of the parents that maybe I wouldn't have had before. Because there's all, all, all sorts of ways to look at what the parents did. And you, you can say, oh, they were privileged, they were middle class. That's all true. Uh, 
But I think because I was in the same, in some sense, not that my child had autism. They didn't. I, mean, I have three kids. They're all, um, you know, whatever, whatever one. I forget what the the term is. Is um, anyway, doesn't matter. That's fine. Um, but as a young parent, we were always worried, right? You always worry. Oh, they're not tired. You know, they're already two years old and they're not talking yet. Maybe something's wrong. Let's go to the doctor. You know. And, oh, um, they don't have friends. Uh, uh, is there something wrong? You know. So, so um, I could really sympathize with, with those concerns. Maybe I would have been more critical if I wasn't in that. So maybe I would have been able to be more critical maybe if I wasn't in that position. I think that's, that's possible. But I also say, I would say that, you know, having children is not the same like having autistic children. <laughs> um, and, um, I felt that it was very important for the research group to have at least one person who was a parent of a child with autism. And uh, it just so happened that I had a good friend from high school whose wife, uh, I mean, whose, whose child had autism and whose wife was a political scientist who was very, became very interested in the topic. And so she joined the research group. Um, and I felt, you know, it was very important that we have her perspective there as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I I'd absolutely agree because I think, uh, you know, while a lot of people say that, you know, in science, in any, uh, I don't know, in any kind of research, you should, you know, be objective, remove, look at the facts and figures. I think there is so much power in, you know, being sensitive to your research subjects, especially if you're doing an ethnography, you know, I think to really understand because, I mean, at the core of it, we are human beings, right? We yeah. sort of thrive and depend on emotion in that sense so you can't you yeah. know yeah so I don't think it's uh you know necessary at all to keep these feelings or you know or like whatever our biases and you know um yeah uh, like implications maybe of that and yeah I think that uh, wraps it up from my end so thank you so much for taking out the time today it was a pleasure talking to you today you're welcome it was a pleasure it was really interesting to talk and I wish you good luck with the rest of the series um and with Peter when you when you talk to him as well thank you for listening to this episode if you enjoyed this episode then please do subscribe or follow you can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle DTRRH podcast for further updates.